Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. Today, Hirsch had the privilege to talk to Philip Coggan, the Capital Markets Editor of The Economist. His illustrious career includes a 20-year stint with the Financial Times. He was voted Best Institutional Fund Management Correspondent three years running from 2002 to 2004, Best Investment Correspondent in 2006, and was named Investment Journalist of the Year for two years in a row in the State Street Institutional Press Awards in Britain. And what more, he also has a bestseller to his name called The Money Machine. This podcast was recorded a few hours after the Bear Stearns debacle where the share prices of the investment bank came tumbling down overnight. So without further ado, here's the conversation between Hirsch and Philip Coggan. How are you? Uh, hassled by international credit crises, but, but fine. Yeah. Can we start with a book? You've written a book called uh, Money Machine. And uh, and yeah, and we were just uh, looking through the internet, and we found lots of comments by bloggers. One of them writes that the book concentrates on expressing financial jargons with simple examples in plain English, and its easy style will appeal to anyone who is remotely fascinated with finance. My question to you is that how how hard was it for you to refrain from using financial jargon, especially for a person who's so deeply entrenched in the capital markets like yourself? Well, that. The book um, has been around for 20 years. I've done five separate editions, so it's designed really for people who don't know anything about the financial system, particularly the British financial system, to to give them a guide. When I first started in financial journalism, there wasn't such a book available, so I thought I ought to write one. And since then, it's been updated several times, and I'm just about to start updating it once more. And most people who try and understand the world of finance are put off by the jargon and the, it's the role of books like mine to try and help them look through the jargon and understand what's really going on. Right, this probably is an interesting time to update the book for one more version because we're talking about the global economy undergoing a slowdown and the talks about even recession in the US markets. If you could explain to us in a, in a layman's language what really does this mean? Is there a globally accepted definition of what constitutes a recession? There isn't precisely. The definition that's often used is two consecutive quarters, three-month periods of declining uh, output in an economy. But that doesn't meet the definition of 2001 in the US, for example, where by another measure there's a group called the National Bureau of Economic Research in the US tells you whether there's been a recession and they they tend to take a year or so to do it, but they said there was a recession in 2001, even though it didn't meet the second, the two quarters in a row definition. For the world as a whole, very, very rare for the world as a whole to see declining output. Um, that's because countries like India, of course, and China uh, are, tend to be growing faster and they're dragging up the average. So for the world as a whole, anything under about 2.5% growth in a year is seen as recession-like. Um, the developed economies, of course, because they're only growing at 2 to 3% in any given year, it's easier for them to drop 
to, to actually falling output for China growing at 9-10% a year, then a 5 or 6% a year growth would feel pretty bad. Right. A lot of emphasis has been put on the growth and the output of the economy as a whole. And it's interesting because uh, Warren Buffett in his recent interview talked about the emphasis on growth in GDP per capita as against the growth in growth in GDP per se. Yeah. What does he really mean by that and do you subscribe to his thought? Right. Well, definitely for, for the average person, growth in GDP per capita, i.e. per person, is the key thing. You can grow the economy in two basic ways. One is that you can have more people right. and they can each produce more. And it's better for the individual if you get the each producing more, which means productivity gain. So we organize our economy in a better way or we come along with some new technology that enhances our standard of living. If the economy grows but just on more people, then each individual person has no greater claim on resources. Right. Uh, we just, it's just a rise because of you know, more people leaving school and eventually as a result of higher births a few years previously or because of more immigration to the economy. So personally, if you're looking at the growth of the economy, what would you subscribe to, growth in the GDP or growth in the per capita income of the individual? The most important thing is the, is the GDP per capita per head. Right. Um, currently, the global market's undergoing uh, turbulent times. Where do you think all of this is headed, really? Well, of course, if I had the exact answer to that, I'd be talking to you from my yacht in the Bahamas, an office in uh, the middle of London. Um, clearly, things are extremely difficult at the moment as we are racing around trying to write an article about the aftermath of the collapse of Bear Stearns. And, and just to think about that for a moment, uh, last year, the stock was trading at $165 per share. Its last account gave a book value, an asset value for the bank of $84 per share, been taken over for $2. That's a lot of value to disappear. And the problem is that um, we've had financial crises through the ages, and banks are incredibly dependent on confidence. The business of banks is to borrow short-term and lend long-term, provided depositors, whether they're retail investors or wholesale, it, to allow them to do that, they need to be confident that the bank will have enough money to pay them back. Once that confidence evaporates, it's very difficult for the bank to be a going concern, and that's the problem that hit Bear Stearns last week. Nobody wanted to deal with them, and as nobody wanted to deal with them, they were unable to get money, and the fact that they were unable to get money made nobody want to deal with them. So you get into this negative spiral. And the problem now is that the whole financial sector is threatened with a spiral. How did all of this start? What is the origin of the whole crisis? The origin of the crisis is definitely that in good times, yes. um, it's easy to borrow money and speculate to buy assets. Right. So whether it's housing or anything else, uh, if asset prices are rising, banks will lend you money to buy assets. And of course, as, the, as you are able to borrow money to buy assets, that demand for the asset pushes the price up which makes banks more confident about lending you money to buy assets and so on, that we get the positive spiral. When we get the, the negative spiral, which we've got at the moment, asset prices are falling, which makes banks nervous about lending you money to buy assets and indeed makes them insist that you repay the previous loan. So that forces you to sell assets, which sends prices down and makes banks even more nervous. 
So uh, that's the problem. We had a massive amount of lending in the global economy, in not just in the US housing, British housing, Spain, Ireland, um, to companies. Uh, and now that, that whole process is unwinding. And it's a matter of someone somewhere restoring confidence. So people say, eventually prices have fallen enough that assets are now cheap. I want to buy, not sell. So in this bearish phase that the global economy is going through, do you think that the fund industry's fortunes are linked to what the market delivers? The, the, the mutual fund industry, you mean, the fund management industry? The fund management as a whole. Yeah, so clearly it is. The fund management's fortunes are based on its revenues. Its revenues are uh, a percentage of the assets it holds under management. So as asset prices fall, then the revenue of fund management companies tends to fall. 20 or 30 years of phenomenally um, good growth because asset prices have generally been rising around the world ever since the early 80s. Um, now we're seeing both property prices falling in some markets and share prices falling and the price of corporate bonds falling. So all those things at the same time, that's a sort of triple hit to um, financial asset prices, which is going to be bad news for fund management companies, yes. You talked about the revenues of the fund manager being linked to the returns that they deliver. Could you explain a little bit in detail on how a fund manager really gets paid his fees for managing yeah. the money? Well, different types of fund managers get paid in different ways. But a, a mutual fund, unit trust, gets paid a percentage of the assets under management, say one or one and a half percent a year. So if the assets rise, then so does his fees. Uh, when you move into more sophisticated managers, uh, hedge funds, private equity, they get also a performance fee, uh, usually 20% of any gains they generate. So again, um, they can do fantastically well if markets are rising, as they have been in recent years, which is why you have some um, fund managers who become billionaires on the back of looking after other people's money. The danger is that they take a slice uh, of the gains when things are going well, but they don't give them back to you when things are going badly because no, they don't share 20% of the losses. Right. So um, it's a bit of a one-way bet for fund management companies. And, and I argued in a piece a couple of weeks ago for um, The Economist that fund managers have done rather too well relative to their clients. The universe of a fund industry is really vast. You talked about hedge funds, private equity funds, mutual funds. How different and distinct are all of these funds to each other? They are different. I mean, hedge funds take more risk. They can use borrowed money. They can go short. They can bet on falling prices. And private equity have greater risk in that they, again, they use borrowed money to finance the deals and they're investing in private companies. So they're, they're not publicly traded. So they they have the risk that they can't immediately realize um, the assets that they hold. Um, and what we've seen in the last 20 years is fantastic growth in both private equity and hedge funds in a genuinely benign environment. So interest rates have been low or falling. Uh, we've had very mild recessions in the US, and we've had uh, very few people defaulting on their loans. The, diff the difficult thing and the interesting thing is what's going to happen to these industries if, as we go ahead, we have rising interest rates, we have a longer recession, and we have much broader defaults by debtors. 
people talk about under-regulations in the fund industry, particularly to the hedge fund industry. Do you think that under-regulation in this industry has been one of the factors which is why we are in a situation that we are today? I'm not so worried about under-regulation of the hedge fund industry as the bank. If the hedge fund goes bust, it can have adverse impacts if it's very large, which was what long-term capital management was all the way back 10 years ago. Um, but it's banks going bust that is the problem because uh, in, our, in Britain we had Northern Rock where you had huge depositors who were worried about getting their money back. In Bear Stearns' uh, case, they are involved with so many other banks and institutions as counterparties for deals that unwinding all those um, deals if, if the bank had gone bust would have been a complete nightmare. So um, you could argue that the banking authorities let the banks take too many risks, push too many um, assets off their balance sheets and disguise their true exposure and now the sort of chickens have come home to roost in the last six months to a year as we've realized that um, the banks were a lot riskier than we thought. Uh, just coming back to the fund industry again, uh, the returns that a fund can make are broken into various components. They talk about alpha and beta. Can you demystify these uh, Greek alphabets for us? Sure. Alpha is what fund managers talk about when they mean skill. Um, beta is the market return they're investing in. So say you had invested in the U.S. equities. Right. The S&P 500, which is the broadest measure of um, equity return had delivered 8% and the fund had delivered 10%, then very simply you could argue that the fund had delivered 8 percentage points of beta, which is the just the straight delivery uh, return to the market, and 2 percentage points of alpha, which was still above and beyond the market. However, that is very simple because it may be that the fund was taking a lot riskier positions in the market. It may be that they were exposed to a particular bit of the market, small companies, for example. Um, so that it may not have been skill at all. It may have been luck or exposure to some risk factor that, that the average investor could have got more cheaply by buying an exchange-traded fund. I think there are exchange-traded funds in India, but um, just in case they're not, these are funds which um, basically mimic an index and can be bought at very low cost. So you talked about the fund managers charging hefty fees as high as 20 or even 40% on the profits that they make. Yeah. Is there an alternate option for the investor, for someone else to manage his money at a lower cost? Well, that's the, the exchange-traded funds I've just been talking about, traditional investments like the S&P 500, for example, exposure to smaller stocks, and now they're working on things called hedge fund replication, where they try and mimic the returns of hedge funds um, at much lower fees, also called the clones, um, if you know your Star Wars, um, which um, we don't know that they'll work precisely yet, but academics have been working away trying to break out exactly where hedge fund returns come from, and they reckon they can explain the vast bulk of them and then reproduce those returns by uh, a fund which is exposed to various different asset classes. So, so it's happening. You will, you will be able to get the bulk of the returns from hedge funds at lower cost um, going forward. The, the, the key question is, 
whether you want that or the vital bit of skill or alpha um, is the only point in owning hedge funds in the first place, in which case it may not be possible to replicate that. So could you argue that a more ideal way of calculating a fund manager's fee should solely be based on alpha and by taking out the beta component from his fees altogether? You certainly could argue that. You should, you know, not, you should certainly pay something, a fairly low fee for the beta and then only pay for the alpha. But you'll still be subject to the risk that the alpha might be due to the luck. So let's say in the case of that example I gave you that the fund was up 10% and the index was up 8 you end up paying, giving away half the alpha um, one percentage point in the good years, and the next year the market's up 8 and the fund's only up 6, uh, you don't give back any of that, you don't get back any of that performance fee that year. So it still might be a system which um, rewards the fund manager rather better than the client. So what are the various roles that fund industry plays? You're talking about managing person's portfolio as one. What about the distribution and interacting with the end consumer? How does that work? Yes, there's a split going on between manufacturing, as they say, and distribution. Manufacturing is actually managing the money. And then you now have banks that um, don't manage so much of money directly. They bring you in as a client say, a Swiss bank, and say, yes, we can look after your, your billion, and, um, but we aren't going to run the money ourselves. We will pick other fund managers and give them the money using our skill and judgment. So that's called the distribution part. There's a, a split between manufacturing and distribution, and there's interesting arguments about that. You still you get paid for doing distribution, but you don't have to have all the costly sort of operations of paying fund managers and sending them around the world to interview companies. And nor do you have the risk that you'll start recommending funds, your own funds, that don't perform very well and the regulators might look askance at you. Right. So how important, in your view, is the separation of the marketing and the distribution function with the management of the portfolio? Well, it's clearly a developing trend. You had both Citigroup and Merrill Lynch give up, essentially, their in-house fund management groups. But the market's going to have lots of different models. So there are other big companies, BlackRock, Fidelity, which you know are very large and do their own fund management. And then you have little um, fund management groups, boutiques, as we call them, specialize in a small area of the market. So you're going to have... You know, almost examples of all different types of the model, really. Right. Just to end this on a lighter note, we did play a small game with Daniel as well, wherein we shot out a series of questions just to understand what is the first thing that comes to your mind when we ask a question to you. Uh, we'd really appreciate if you could indulge in this small game with us as well. Sure, fire away. Uh, the first question is, how would you describe in one word the economist editorial view of the world? Well, uh, liberal with a small L. Uh, who has half jokingly but famously said, I used to think, now I just read The Economist? Uh, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Uh, that, was, um, that was Larry Ellison. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, in one word, what is your message to a few who find that The Economist is pitched at an American readership only because of its high circulation there? Um, no. I'd, um, Americans tend to worry that it's it's too British. So I think um, 
we do try to be genuinely global. And we, if you look at the average issue of The Economist, there are a lot more pages on outside America than there are on America. Our cover story in the last week, but one, was on India. And this last week, it was on China. So I think we're a genuinely global publication. If you compare us with, say, Time or Newsweek, which are much more focused on the U.S. market and where to have a foreign story lead would be more rare than it would be in, in The Economist. Uh, everyone has the favorites. What is your favorite section on The Economist? Well, I have to say finance and uh, economics, don't I? <laughs> yes, apart from that, I'd say I like the arts and um, the arts pages. And, uh, that was quite interesting. Yes. I, I do have written the odd bit for that, but I always find something interesting to read there. As a capital markets editor, name one journalistic liberty that a correspondent takes in his article that you would pardon. <laughs> well, the great problem, having written about markets for a very long time, I used to be at the FT, is a tendency to say the market thinks this or the market thinks that. And um, I, of course, have not interviewed everybody in the markets to know what everybody thinks. Not everybody in the market would think the same thing. So um, that's something you have to do because it's just a shorthand. At the moment, the dollar falling, for example, then that's clearly a sign that someone in the market or the preponderance of people in the market are worried about the health of the U.S. economy. One such liberty that you would never pardon? Um, I think that... The biggest fault would probably to think that it's different this time. So to swallow the kind of marketing pipe that uh, people in the financial sector tend to put forward, as in you know, the dot-com boom when traditional measures of value for stocks didn't matter anymore, we were told. Or you just didn't get it if you didn't believe that... Uh, dot-com pet food companies were worth several billion dollars. So I think, I think being carried away in, by the euphoria of the people you're covering is, is a great mistake. If economist was a cotton character, what would it be? <laughs> um, gosh. Daniel apparently uh, said asterisks. Oh, really? Uh, possibly, uh, I'm thinking of this because my kids watch it all the time, probably Velma from Scooby-Doo. Well, why do you say that? Because she's always um, trying to be um, scientific and figure out the, that it's really only a bloke in the mask. So <laughs> I'm hoping that she's the, okay. she's the clever one. So. Yeah. Well, what's the biggest compliment you've ever received as a writer or an editor? Well, I think being interviewed for this service. <laughs> what is the feeling that you get when you wake up every morning for work. I mean, you've been around for over 25 years. You've worked for yeah. the Financial Times. You're working. You're a capital markets editor with The Economist. I mean, what is the general feeling that you get every morning when you come to work? <laughs> well, I suppose it's what on earth has happened in the market to occupy us today. I mean, at the moment, it's just amazing to be trying to keep up with all the things that are going on. So this morning, I was conscious of the fact that I knew that Bear Stearns had been sold overnight for a 15th of its share price on Friday night, so I knew it was going to be a day where there's going to be a lot of work and a lot of phone calls. Thank you so much for taking time out okay. despite your busy schedule. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Philip. Bye-bye.